I'm saying. Okay. Long Talk Radio. Okay, we are now uh, uh, broadcasting from the District Freedom of Log Talk Radio, as well as in New York, New York um, City. I guess we can still call New York City in East New York, Brooklyn. Yes. Right. And, and we will do a station identification. This is T A N D L Radio www.tandlradio.com and on the internet and for uh, uh, FM 90.5 in East New York on your radio. Okay, well, today on the Just of Freedom, we have a lot going on. Um, in the news, first off, we lost Fidel Castro. Fidel um, was a friend to African Americans. When he came to the United States, he refused to stay anywhere else other than Harlem, New York, amongst his people. There's pictures of him with Mandela, with Malcolm X. So we want to um, pay our respects to Fidel Castro. And as far as this presidential campaign. Um, the latest news in this campaign is that Mrs. Hillary Rodham Clinton has joined the fight to have the votes recounted. Within two days, within two days, Jill Stein, uh, her, another woman who was running for president, requested some funds from the public so that she could Jill Stein. Jill Stein. Two days she raised over $4 million to pay for the recount. And um, at the same time, we have a friend, Daniel Brezinov. He received close to $6 million, $4.5 million uh, signatures to try to persuade the electors to dump Trump. Now, who know the theme of our show, the gist of freedom is the gist of freedom is still faith. And what that means is that if we truly want to be free, we have to exercise our faith. And we also know that you can't exercise your faith without having deeds because you have to have action. And you don't have to have mm-hmm. a lot of action. The scriptures will only require that we have to have action the size of a mustard seed. So when you hear people say, oh, you have to go out on a limb and risk your life in order to have faith, that's not what it's all about. Faith is believing in things unseen but hope for, meaning mm-hmm. one, one little step, take it one step at a time. Don't look at right. what the world is telling you. Don't listen to it. You're going to say you're crazy. You don't know what you're doing. You're just a long shot. Good guys finish last. You'll hear all those negative messages. But we don't, uh-huh. we don't operate in that realm. We don't operate in that realm. So I am so happy to hear that Hillary has joined in. I'm happy that people are signing up. And on top of all these things, before the election recount even started in Wisconsin, they have um, already fessed up that they made a mistake. 
The Wisconsin people have said they that there was a calculation problem, an error in calculating, and 5,000 votes disappeared in their pre-count. They had a wow. So 18% of the Trump's supposed lead has disappeared with about 5,000 votes. And I'm getting this information because I was challenged by one of my hosts to cite my source. And I respect him, little Roy Paul, (coughs) that I'm citing. Her name is Amy Siskind, S-I-S-K-I-N-D. Follow her Mm -hmm. on Twitter and you will see her documentation where she uh, is following the story closely in Wisconsin. And she has over 697 retweets and 535 likes. Um, So if you are tired of fake media and fake stories, you need to follow trusted veteran people. Mm -hmm. Like Vandal Pinkston on Facebook and Twitter. Like um, uh, um, all these people who have retired. Carol Jenkins. Uh-huh. Um, Facebook, she's posting things. We have one of my favorite, I can't think of her name right now, Sue Simmons. All of these people that we grew up with and trusted as news reporters, these are the people you need to follow because they have no strings attached to them and they will tell you the news now that they're free <clears throat> and retired. <clears throat> so I'm delighted to hear that. Now, on the Gist of Freedom, we had at 1230, Mr. Brezhnev, the organizer of the 4.6 million um, signers of his petition to dump Trump, he came on our show, and he was fabulous. He explained every angle of his argument, and we had callers call in, astute callers who are well-versed in this area, and he was able to defend himself. So we're going to play clips from that show. But before we get into that, because I have been straying so far away from my mission, which is to bridge the gap between the past and the present, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about our past. We, as African Americans, we have been petitioning since day one, since the minute we learned how to read and write, since the minute we found out what the laws were. We have been mm-hmm. trying and we have made it so bad to the system and our haters that they had to take us all the way to the Supreme Court to deny us our rights, and that was the case of Dred Scott. And Dred Scott was um, preceded by hundreds of enslaved people who fought for their freedom because their slavers made a mistake and took them across the Mason-Dixon line or into an area that was uh, that uh, slavery was prohibited, and um, they knew somehow that once free, forever free. And once they found out that you took me into a, a free area, and they reported to a, a abolitionist, someone that would fight for them on their behalf. Mm-hmm. So, with that being said, I'm going to read to you a little bit about one of the most successful petitions. And I'm going to read it. One of the largest petitions ever reaching the Washington office of Congressman John Quincy Adams 
was an immense roll of paper about the size of a barrel. It bore 51,862 signatures headed by the name George Latimer, a self-emancipated black man from Norfolk, Virginia. Latimer had been arrested and placed in a Boston jail in October of 1842. The abolitionists rallied to his defense, attempting to have him released by a writ of heaviest corpus. When this proved unsuccessful, the abolitionists held a mass meeting at Faneuil Hall on October 30th, followed by a series of Latimer meetings throughout the state. I have never known people so aroused before wrote Samuel E. Sewell, legal counsel for Latimer. To coordinate the speakers at the Faneuil Hall gathering, um, abolitionists protested, and they had a committee, and they appointed Henry I. Bowditch, William F. Cheney, and Frederick Cabot. This trio brought out a weekly called the Latimer Weekly and the North Star, Another committee operation was the promotion of two monster petitions, one to the state legislator and another to the national legislator, the Great Massachusetts Petition. This called for a state law forbidding the use of public property or the service of public officials in the detention or arrest of any alleged fugitive. The Great Petition of Congress asked that such laws or amendments be passed as with separate which would separate the people of Massachusetts from all connections of slavery. So this petition worked out so well that after five weeks, the legislators passed a measure dubbed the Latimer Statute because it was so closely modeled after their petition. So history teaches us that these petitions do work. Now, similar, mm-hmm. to address, similar to address Scott case, once they work too well and they become too successful, of course, the slavers in our modern-day slavery today, they will do whatever it takes to keep you from using that same historical path. So they implemented something called the gag rule, all right? And in May of 1836, the House passed a resolution that automatically tabled or postponed action on all petitions relating to slavery. In 1837-38, for example, abolitionists took more than 130,000 petitions to Congress asking for the abolishment of slavery in Washington, D.C. In addition, they opposed the admission of New slave states and the annexation of Texas. Anti-slavery mm-hmm. became more insistent. Southern members of Congress were increasingly adamant in their defense of slavery. Slavers found this practice offensive, and they were sure that this simultaneous pamphlet campaign would incite enslaved black people to violence and insurrection. After all, even if the enslaved were not supposed to be literate, they can certainly understand the inflammatory illustrations depicted on the pamphlet cover. So, That's true. So they never, ever wanted us to read or write. And it just, 
didn't want us signing any petitions. They didn't want us delivering any petitions. They didn't want to hear us read the petitions. So when Frederick Douglass said that uh, educated black men is not fit to be a slave, that mm-hmm. came that came straight out of the mouth of the slaver. Mm-hmm. So don't ever think that a slave, the slave system gave black people a Bible as a form of enslavement. That is not true. They knew if we ever got our hands on anything that we could read, it was on. And especially, mm-hmm. you see what happened when Nat Turner got a hold of the Bible, and you see what happened when Harriet Tubman got it, and you see what happened when Denmark Vesey got it. And the problem of today, only thing I can surmise from looking at history, is that we don't have any um, black people with a Bible in their hand and using the Bible for the purpose it was intended to be used. Jesus was a serious community activist. Yes, he was. He was a civil rights person. He was all those things wrapped up in one. He was not a person that was sitting at the podium begging people for tithes. He was not a prosperity preacher. Nope. Nope. It was nothing like the, the churches of today. Nothing. So He was down with the poor people. He was down with the radical movement. He was down with mm-hmm. the system of oppression. Mm-hmm. He was trying to separate the state and the church. Mm-hmm. The, the government, the... And, and trying to make sure that the people that are making the laws would follow in the same laws that they're making for other people. Right. And making the laws for other people, as he said, don't you do what they say, but don't follow their activity because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. He said, you can call your laws your laws, but don't start saying these laws in the name of my father. Right. Say whatever you want. You can make up the laws and say they're Miss Nellie Johnson's law. But when you start saying that these laws are ordained by my father, which are in heaven, you got a problem with Jesus. Because he was a radical. Because he was a radical. He, he was certainly stuff radical. They didn't want to hear. No, they didn't. Just like now. Uh-huh. People don't want to hear stuff. They don't want to hear it. And nothing is more wicked than to see these preachers pushing Donald Trump. I don't know what Jesus <laughs> said. That's true. I don't know where they. I don't know what black person they were. Especially the black preacher. No. I know the white ones are actually pushing white supremacy, but I don't know what the black ones are pushing. Well, they pushing money. Get get rich or die trying. And that's what their thing is. So, uh, with that said, do you have any comments or suggestions? Not at this time. Okay. How was your Thanksgiving before we? Turn on this. Uh, <laughs> it was beautiful. It was wonderful. And yours? It was uh, it was really really good. I think I'm gonna go to the movies. I'm gonna keep on celebrating. I want to go see the film Loving. Um, the just uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah. I'm, I'm gonna try to see that. Yeah. I'm going to see. I might it because, try to go tomorrow. Yeah, I'm seeing it because um, we are promoting the film. Of, well, one of the actresses, she plays the mother of. Um, the woman, the black woman in the film. Her name is mm-hmm. Lee Holland. And we interviewed her. She had a fabulous interview. 
Um, there's some Oscar buzz. There's a lot of buzz about this film. Um, it's a very historical film. They arrested these people, a white man, a black mm-hmm. woman, um, mm-hmm. for um, being together. So they arrested these, um, this couple. And they, in this case, went all the way to the Supreme Court. And um, so for the history's sake of it, I'm going to see it. And also to support, again, her name is Winter Lee Holland. And Winter Lee also read my little play, um, which is the Underground Railroad story for little children I wrote. And we performed it in front of a church in Maryland, and she traveled mm-hmm. in the car to uh, perform my mm-hmm. play. And you can see and, and learn more about the Gist of Freedom on our website. We have the Gist of Freedom.com. We have the Gist of Freedom on YouTube. Um, we have the Gist of Freedom on Blog Talk. BlogTalkRadio.com slash The Gist of Freedom, also Black History University, and www.BlackHistoryBlog.com. So you can learn more about us on the Internet. And, of course, my Facebook page, um, L-E-S-L-E-Y Leslie, gets G-I-S-D. So I hear some callers on. Is there anyone on the line that has anything to say? Before we turn this clip on, hi, it's uh, just Cecilia calling in. Hi, Cecilia. I was hoping you would meet Mr. Brezinoff, but it's okay. It was nice hearing you. I hope you had a great um, Thanksgiving, and I hope you continue to have a great weekend. That's it. Yes. Oh. Hi, hi, Leslie, and hi, everyone. Uh, well, I, I don't personally celebrate Thanksgiving, but uh, yes, uh, I hope everyone had a uh, Lovely Thanksgiving, um, and uh, for all of you who celebrate the holiday, um, and a happy holidays. And why don't you celebrate it? That was my question. Don't you have something to be thankful for? I, it's just not a tradition, you know? It's just not a family no. tradition. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Family tradition, okay. All right, well, I thought you were going to say something politically correct, like what's going on with the Dakota Pipeline. Yeah, I didn't get to that today. Yeah, well, um, the Dakota Pipeline, they're still fighting their little hearts out. I know that, um, mm-hmm. um, what's, what's her name? Her father is an actor. There's a celebrity went down there. She fed the um, Native Americans on Thanksgiving. And they're getting a lot of attention. And there's a lot of, um, the saddest thing about that protest is that they're saying that those are private uh, mercenaries, for lack of better words. Better words. Yes. The, the cops. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. believe it. I don't know okay. it for sure, but I believe it. Yeah, I've heard that they're being paid by the corporations to fight mm-hmm. the Native Americans. And see, that's that's, this, this, a lot of stuff that's going on today is so anti-American, so inhumane. When corporations mm-hmm. start to take over, mm-hmm. and corporations are more important than people and life yes. and war, we have a major problem. Yes. Yep. So, the thing, and the thing is that the the people that are running the pipeline are mad at President Obama because they said he 
said he's standing in the way, but the, what happened is he asked the the um it was the army corps of engineers take another look at that pipeline because part of it is going across federal land, and they could move it to another spot. It doesn't have to go the direction it's going. The people that's running it said, no, they don't want to move it. They don't want to move it one inch. They want to keep it where it's going where it is. So they know it's going to disrupt the lives of the Indians, but they don't care. Well, see, I'm going to tell you something. The fascist government doesn't want any semblance of freedom fighters or humanitarian people in existence. We are their worst enemy, especially Native yeah. Americans. Native Americans can survive through genocide, mm-hmm. um, all humane conditions. That is a, a major problem to a fascist government and corporation because their whole plan is to keep Americans ignorant of their personal mm-hmm. power, of their love for one another, and their stamina. And mm-hmm. the Americans are the real Statue of Liberty. The African Americans are next in line. The Mexicans who fought and had a black president abolish slavery before Texas took, took them over. And that was used to be a place where we can run to. Um, Florida, where the other Native Americans, where the Seminole Indians, Native Americans, fought with us. So every avenue that we use to, to, to go as a safe haven were all chopped down. And Haiti was an international place that was recognized as a place that fought fascism and um, the mm-hmm. oppressors. So that's why Haiti is 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 an um, enemy to corporations and the KKK and Aryan mm-hmm. Mexico is a, uh, is also an enemy because of what they stand for. That is why um, the last place standing right now is Canada. Canada, you hear a lot of people saying, if Trump gets in, we move into Canada. Canada um, is the last resort right now, but we don't know if Canada is adopting the ways of the oppressor. So before we hit this clip, and I did hear another caller come in. Anyone have anything to say before we move on? Okay. So I'm going to introduce this clip by reading this article that I shared on my Facebook page. And it states the following. Before the recount has even begun, Evidence of foul play has been exposed in three Wisconsin precincts. 18% of Trump's supposedly disappeared when an audit uncovered 5,000 fake votes. Jill Stein's recount fundraiser yields $4 million in under two days. Meet, okay, so let's go down here. As it currently stands, Donald Trump has won 290 electoral votes, which Clinton has won 232. The results mm-hmm. of Michigan, which has 16 electoral votes, remain too close to call. So they haven't even given Michigan to anybody yet. So there's mm-hmm. still dangling out there. Hillary Clinton has widened her lead in the popular vote to 1.5 percentage points 
a spread not seen for a losing candidate since 1876. If Trump fails to win Michigan, Clinton will still need at least 22 electors to disregard their state popular vote and pick her over Trump. Here's the explanation of what local officials offered to an ABC News affiliate to explain the discrepancy in Wisconsin. In order to give election returns to the, to the outer Guyme County Clerk's Office as quickly as possible, the chief inspector added together the vote from the election machine tape. An error was made while keying the numbers on the calculator during this process, resulting in an instant, in a, incorrect number of votes reported on election night. But, mm-hmm. but for this to be believed, one would have to accept that the same honest error was made in three precincts, and that in all of them, Donald Trump was a huge beneficiary of that mass error. Moreover, Hillary Clinton's vote totals didn't change at all in these precincts with these little errors. It was simply mm-hmm. a matter of three precincts padding Donald Trump's totals with imaginary votes that they now acknowledge never really existed. All right. So now that we got that out of the way, let us play this clip, and we'll be back. Are the kids doing their homework? Is the dog on the couch again? Is Grandpa okay? Now through Monday, you can get $50 off Nest Cam Indoor. So you can check okay. setups, streams 24-7 to your phone, and send alerts if there's motion or conspicuous sounds. Now, less is more connected. Get it at Best Buy now and save $50 on Nest Cam Indoor while you still can. Limit 2. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. And blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight. And we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Oh, is Daniel on the line? Yes. All right, great. Uh, this is Roy Paul. I'm filling in as a guest host on the Gift of Freedom. Today we have a special guest, Daniel Brezanoff, who hails from California and is starting a GoFundMe page to raise money to encourage the members of the Electoral College to vote against the wishes of the popular vote in their state in favor of Hillary Clinton. I wanted to have him on the line to talk about what he's doing and how he's trying to gain support. So, Daniel, why don't you start uh, off by giving us a little bit of perspective on your background and sort of your political um, affiliation as it relates to why you decided to start this GoFundMe page. Uh, well, thank you, and thanks thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a social worker by, by trade, by career. Uh, I, in the past, have been an American history teacher, and uh, I've also been a uh, political activist since I was a kid. 
I actually, in 2007, was nominated by the Green Party uh, here in Southern California to uh, run for Congress in California's 37th District. Had a really good time doing that. Uh, and I've been on and off a Democrat and, and, and a Green, uh, just, just depending on, uh, on where I feel like I can do the most good. And, uh, you know, I watched in dismay as, as Donald Trump certainly the most unqualified candidate ever to, to stand for uh, for national office. Uh, just watched in dismay and disbelief as he as he rose to become the uh, apparent president-elect. And on Wednesday night after the election, you know, I, I, I was sitting here pretty despondent with my wife. You know, it just occurred to me that actually the, the American people have never elected our own president. That's not how it works. The Electoral College elects the president, and they don't vote until December 19th. So this is the constitutional path that's left open to preventing Trump from assuming power. And, uh, you know, I put the petition up just thinking it might generate some interesting discussion on my on my, on my my social media pages. Uh, I had no idea it was going to uh, take off like this, but I'm very glad to see the response. So if there was a goal of $35,000 that you were trying to raise, you're about uh, 20-some-odd thousand, I think twenty-eight, $29,000 of the way there. Um, talk about your strategy um, now with the Electoral College members and then after you hopefully raise the $35,000. Well, I don't, I don't know if our strategy will change, but uh, the more money we raise, the wider reach we're going <laughs> to, excuse me, be able to have. Uh, you know, this is an unusual campaign. You know, I've been involved in a lot of uh, political campaigns on, on particular issues, ballot propositions, and, and for candidates. And this is just a strange animal. I, I can't think of anyone or any movement that petitioned the Electoral College. I can't remember any efforts ever to, to encourage conscientious electors or free electors. And so everyone I've talked to, all the strategists, uh, and really experienced people in, in political campaigns. Everybody's kind of scratching their heads and not really sure what the best approach is. There's just no model for it. So, uh, you know, what we think is the louder this uh, message gets, the more people, uh, the more Americans hear it, uh, then the more likely the electors are going to hear it and, uh, and feel some pressure to really deliberate. You know what? Uh, that's what we're really asking them to do is to, to deliberate carefully. It's not an automatic process where they just have to vote exactly how their state's majority told them to. That's not what the Constitution requires of them. So we really just want them to deliberate. So we're trying to get our message out in various ways. Uh, obviously, we're asking people to share the petition on social media. We're also trying to move to more traditional platforms like television. I've been on on a few uh, broadcast shows and on NPR, uh, we're trying to amplify the message that way. We're asking people to write letters to the editor. We're looking at uh, buying space in some of the big newspapers in these uh, states that Trump uh, that Trump has more uh, electors or has, has been delegated the electors, like uh, like Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, North Carolina, taking taking out some ad space in these newspapers to speak directly to the electors, and that's not just going to be me speaking, but we have a, a slate of academics, uh, some some politicians, some of the electors themselves who will uh, who have expressed interest in signing on to a letter, uh, and so we'll be doing that. Uh, and then we're, we're supporting uh, direct actions, protests, 
in the in the state capitals on December nineteenth, uh, the day the electors vote. Right. So the thirty-five thousand dollars—that was just sort of an arbitrary number. There was no fixed budget in terms of uh, specific actions that you were going to do. Well, I wouldn't say it was arbitrary. I mean, I sat—you know—I have a, a little team working with me, and I sat down with my my finance person, uh, who's a, a, fun, a professional fundraiser and a a uh, financial planner, and who actually worked with me on my congressional campaign, and. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we budgeted. I mean, we're, we're budgeting for office space. We're budgeting for advertisement in newspapers. We needed a bigger server for our website because every time we uh, send an email to the petition signers and ask them to come to the website to take a particular action or, or, or whatever, it crashes our server. So every time we've had to get a bigger server, we just have so many people that are following us. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the 35000 is is basically... Uh, for having a basic structure of an organization with an office with with a web presence as well as a little bit of advertising budget and uh, we'd like to be able to pay a lawyer you know, we haven't really sat down with a lawyer at this point we'd like to be talking to a lawyer because we are raising money and uh, and engaging in political activities so we want to make sure we do that all all uh, correctly um, so that's that's what the money is for and I think you know if we reach thirty five thousand dollars, we uh, will say thank you and then we're going to raise our goal because the more money we can raise, uh, the more newspapers we're going to be able to uh, advertise in and the louder this message will be. Still there? Hello. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, oh, I, yeah. I saw that you had put. I saw that you posted that you were moving from a part-time position with this campaign into a more full-time role. Uh, is part of any of that $35,000 going to find salaries or going to organizers like you? Not yet. I mean, to be honest, we haven't even touched it. It's just sitting there. Uh, you know, I quit my job, and so I asked friends and family to help me out. I mean, I have some side gigs. I teach. And I'm a social worker, so I, I, I'm able to have a little bit of income. But, you know, I gave up the big chunk of my income uh, to pursue this. So I reached out to friends and family to help with that element. I'm not asking the public to support me. Uh, the money that we raise from the public, uh, our intention is to put that towards the operations of this organization and the campaign itself. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Electoral College and the reason behind why it was founded. Um, there are a lot of people who uh, have in the past, including Donald Trump, expressed dismay over the, the electoral process. Um, I think this is the first time that I can remember where there is such an uproar about the results based on the Electoral College that there is this sort of groundswell of opposition uh, to get right. the Electoral College members to, to switch their votes. But uh, in terms of the founding fathers and why it was founded, um, a lot of people tend to have accepted this notion that if we elected our president solely on the popular vote, you would have the candidates running in places like California and New York to boost up the popular vote numbers, and places like Wisconsin um, and other small Iowa states would, would not really see the result of a campaign structure apparatus in the state because everyone would just go to California, New York, Pennsylvania, you know, and Texas. Um, so I think even though there's within the political structure, there's a lot of people who have expressed dismay. They, they tend to all agree 
that that principle of having the presidential candidates campaign in states that otherwise would not receive any attention um, is a reasonable uh, assumption to make to make the president represent the wholeness of the United States of America. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Uh, well, I, I disagree. I disagree very strongly, and I appreciate you asking that because it probably is the most common response that, that we've gotten. And I think there, you know, there are some people who agree with it, but I think there are many people who disagree. And if you look at constitutional scholars, legal scholars nowadays, most of them don't agree with that. And so uh, I'll say why I think that that argument doesn't ultimately hold up. First of all, in our current system, uh, a very small number of states get all the attention. We call those the swing states. So nobody comes to campaign in California. Nobody campaigns in Texas. Certainly nobody goes to campaign in Wyoming or Idaho or Alaska. I mean, they may go there to do a little fundraising or for a photo op, but they're not aiming their message at those voters. They're not sitting down talking with those voters. Uh, so most states are ignored, and that includes the states where most of the people are. And uh, I think that should offend us as Americans. We want uh, the places where most of the people are to get the attention. Uh, so first of all, in our current system, we're ignoring the vast majority of Americans and focusing on a small number of swing states. And there's certainly nothing in the Constitution that says our election system should work this way, that, that, that presidents should campaign in the places where uh, it happens to be the closest and, and, and the, the, the most uh, even split. That, that doesn't really make any sense. It certainly was not what our framers intended. Second of all, uh, you know, you could add up all the votes in California, Texas, and New York, and you still would not come close to a majority of votes. And so in a national popular vote, candidates would certainly have to campaign in other places. And in fact, it would put every single vote in the United States in play. So if I thought I could go win 80% of the votes in Wyoming, you know, that that could be 100,000 votes or something like that, and that could put me over the top. It actually could be campaigning in a small state that would that would make the difference uh, with some uh, with in a certain campaign. And, you know, let's remember, you know, these folks are flying all over the place. They also have access to digital media. It's not as if they have to go physically to these places over and over. This isn't, uh, you know, whistle-stop campaigning like they did 150 years ago. It's rather easy, actually, to reach any particular area of the country. And so just because you're out in a rural area far away from population centers doesn't mean that it is such a big pain for the campaigns to reach you. And so your votes would be in play. More votes would be in play. Every vote would be in play instead of just these swing state votes. As it stands now, people know if you're not in a swing state, your vote means nothing. You may as well not even show up to the polls. We know who your state is going to win. And it doesn't matter if Trump wins Texas by one vote or if Trump wins Texas by a million votes, he gets all 38 of the electors. And so to be a Democrat in Texas or a Republican in California, your vote's not in place. So this would put more votes in play, and they would certainly have to campaign outside the population center. I would also point out that in the, at the founding of the country, the founders did not say, we want to protect the small states from the large population centers. That's not what they said. What they said is something very specific. We want to protect slavery from northern abolitionism. And so that's not a general principle about protecting small states. It's a very particular concern that no longer exists, right? We're not trying to protect slavery anymore. So that doesn't exist anymore. And the fact is, 
Just because two states are small doesn't mean they have anything in common. The voters of Rhode Island, when they vote, they each get an extra two and a half votes tacked on to their vote. So they go to the they go to the poll, they vote, and that's three and a half votes for the president. Uh, yet Rhode Island is a city. I mean, Rhode Island is almost entirely Providence. That's that's what Rhode Island is. It doesn't have these vast outlying rural areas. It's entirely a city, and it's right next door to another small state, Connecticut, that is also highly urbanized. There certainly are some rural, suburban areas there, but many big cities in Connecticut. It's part of the, the you know, the, the New York megalopolis over there. And so those two states, highly democratic, highly urbanized, small, they get extra votes. Over here, Alaska, Wyoming, Idaho, Republican states, vast emptiness, mostly wilderness, barely anyone lives there, and they're getting the same treatment that Rhode Island and Connecticut get, even though their interests are totally different. So we're not protecting any particular political interests with this. It's actually very arbitrary. We're just saying if you happen to live in a small state, whether it's urban population center like Rhode Island or wilderness like Alaska, we're going to give you extra votes. Yet the people in Texas who live out in the middle of nowhere in the in the panhandle and went in out by Odessa or in the middle of the state when I, I should say the middle of nowhere I don't I just mean they live in very underpopulated areas right those folks are getting shafted you, you're, their votes count for about one quarter of the votes in just in neighboring Arkansas and Oklahoma and that's true whether you live in a rural area of Texas or in Dallas Houston San Antonio Austin. So, again, this really doesn't make any sense, this idea that because I live in a small state, I have to get extra votes. It just makes no sense. And it doesn't, it doesn't protect any particular political interest. It doesn't fit with our Constitution's uh, intent, our, our founding father's intention. And uh, it doesn't make sure that more Americans participate in presidential elections. In fact, it greatly limits participation. A national popular vote would bring every vote into yeah, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. It's, it's not a question that uh, is widely popular to ask, but there's a reason for it. Uh, are, are you prepared to state who you actually voted for for president? Uh, I I mean, is it, does that matter much? I, well, the, the, it, goes, it, goes, it goes to a larger point that I want to bring up. It's not pertinent to your answer, but I'm just curious. I mean, I'd rather keep that myself. Okay. And, and, and so my, my question then is this. When uh, I was going to be interviewing you, I put this out there and I wanted to get some feedback from friends, many of whom were on different political spectrums, and I wanted to get their feedback. And one person said to me, look, we have a current system. We've seen this before with Al Gore, who lost the, pop- who lost the electoral college but got the popular vote. And everyone accepts that this is the system that we have, the Electoral College. There is now the uh, third-party movement with Jill Stein to have voter recounts. And many of the people, not all of them, but many of the people who are pushing either a recount or uh, the switching of the Electoral College members uh, from the popular votes in the state are from the third-party apparatus of our system. I had a friend say to me today, it seems as if their problem is with the system, the electoral college system. Instead, 
of putting their energies into having the Electoral College members switch their votes, which they are not legally bound, we know that they're not, to vote for the popular vote-getter in their state, why not have them take their efforts with abolishing the Electoral College? Well, look, I mean, that's that's a great question. I mean, we're not going to abolish the Electoral College before December 19th. So, you know, I think that uh, after whoever's inaugurated is inaugurated, uh, I, I mean, I hope that this momentum translates into a push to reform the Electoral College. Uh, I, I absolutely support that. But right now, this is the system we have. And so while that system has this undemocratic aspect of keeping the national popular vote but throwing it out and instead awarding extra votes to people in small states. It also has another undemocratic aspect, and that is that the electors can vote any way they want. Well, this year, they have the chance, through that power, to make the whole thing more democratic. So, you know, they can say, we're going to pick national popular vote winner. And that's completely within uh, the realm of their constitutional mandate. So, you know, yes, I think it's an undemocratic system. Yes, we should reform it. But right now, this is the system we have. And to keep Trump out of the White House, this is a constitutional path that, uh, that the United States could take. Well, then let well, me submit to you. We have callers on yeah. the line. All right. We'll get to the callers in just one second. Um, but, but let's talk about that constitutional path because I think a lot of you, a lot of listeners, and a lot of people who've been watching this uh, play out um, are, are quite curious. Let's say, for example, your campaign is successful. You raise the 35000 and the mass of people are able to persuade the Electoral College members to switch their votes. They vote for Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump doesn't have the electoral votes he needs to become president. Many elect constitutional attorneys then say that Donald Trump has a very easy and simple legal case that could go up to the Supreme Court charging that there's no legal precedent for what had happened. Uh, he will then control the Supreme Court, right? And it will get overturned anyway. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I, I don't think he would have a case. It's very clear and uh, that the electors can vote any way they wish. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I think he would have no, no case and they would go nowhere. Uh, he, you know, wouldn't be in control of the Supreme Court because he wouldn't be the president. Uh, as it says, the Supreme Court is, de- is deadlocked at four to four. Uh, of course, I have no idea what what John Roberts uh, thinks of this. I have no idea what, what any of the Supreme Court justices think of this uh, personally. But but there, there's no uh, indication anywhere in American jurisprudence or in the Constitution that uh, a president could complain that the electors ignore their states majority votes, uh, particularly uh, because in 21 states, there are no laws like that. In Texas, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Indiana, in Louisiana, and a, and a handful of others, uh, there's, the, the law is silent on this matter. And so th- there's no question the electors can switch their votes. But, but even if all the conscientious electors came from those states where there is some legal attempt to bind them, to their state's majority vote, uh, I still say that Trump would have no case. There's just there's just nothing you can point to anywhere in, in American law that 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 says the electors must vote 
uh, with their state's majority uh, because uh, if they if, if they did have them, why would we have electors? Why wouldn't we just tally up the votes, the electoral votes, award them to the candidates? That what would be the point of having these 538 people travel to their state capital, in many cases in snowstorms, and fill out a ballot and then submit it and it goes to Congress and then Congress? It doesn't make any sense. We would just call it on November 8th. This person won the electoral vote. That's it. So it's clear they can vote any way they wish, and they, he, would, he would have no case. Okay, fair point. Let's go to one of the callers. Well, let me let me just. I'm not hearing the caller. It got cut off. Hello. Is the caller there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, first of all, like, there's a couple things that you're sort of going across that you're not addressing. Number one, that America is a federal republic that's a union of states, and each state has its own rights and semblance. So the fact of the matter is we do have a popular vote. It's only done on a state level. And so your whole argument doesn't apply because you're fundamentally not not addressing what our country actually is. And I see this a lot. People keep talking about America as one big nation when it's a union of, of separate states. Well, uh, sir, uh, we solved that in 1865. Uh, that's no longer the case. We are one nation. The states are not a loose confederation of sovereign states. Uh, that's just not how it is anymore. That, that was resolved by the Civil War. But even if you make that argument, it doesn't change the fact that the electors can vote for anyone they wish. The founders did not see... Uh, the vote of the people as really mattering much. They thought of the president as being chosen by the state to lead a federation of the state. And, uh, and that's precisely why... Sorry, there's a lot, of, a lot of background noise. I can't really speak when that's going on. Thanks. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. That, that's precisely why they gave the electors the, the right to vote however they want and why they told the state hey, you can choose to send these electors any way you want. We have nothing to say about how you pick these electors. They could be appointed by the governor, the state legislature. It doesn't even have to be a people's vote. But right. I think that, but, but but, you, but I think that you, most you, Americans... You canceled your own point already, sir, because your whole no, point no. of this thing is as a conscious objector, as if these electors have somehow are moved from a moral standpoint to not elect Trump. Let's just address that right out the gate. This is a whole liberal media construct in the first place because most of the issues of when it comes to Trump are just stuff that's not even real. For example, on immigration, the Democrats in 1995 wanted to build a wall and wanted to enforce immigration. Hillary Clinton herself was on record wanting to build a wall in 2006. So nothing Trump is presenting Sir, from I've a said policy standpoint is, is – I've said nothing about the wall. Hold on. Let's stay with your first point, and then I'm happy to talk about – Donald Trump and why he's a dangerous candidate. But uh, so first of all, again, at the founding of the republic, the the states were told, you can send these electors any way you want. It's not the American people who are electing their president. It's the electors who elect them, okay? So if we're going to say that that's the way we're doing it, then then I'm I'm on perfectly solid ground. The electors can vote for anyone they want. How the people in their state voted doesn't matter under our constitution. 
It's the state electors who vote for president. And so I'm imploring them to vote to vote the way I want them to vote. I have every right to do that, and they have every right to do it as well. They are not bound by the people's vote in the state. But now if you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, what about the people's will? Well, then the people's will in the United States is for Mrs. Clinton. The fact is, in the Civil War, because of the uh, triumph of federal sovereignty, because of the 14th Amendment that says, hey, it's a federal right to vote, we are no longer a loose confederation of sovereign states. We haven't been for more than 100 years, 150 years. So, and, and most people get that. That's an antiquated system. We elect our senators directly. The state legislatures don't elect them. We've changed as a nation. We are one nation, indivisible. Remember that little poem we all say? So, I, I, again, you, you can say that the system was put in as a federalist system to give the rights to the state, but that only supports what I'm saying. The electors can vote for anyone they want. Or you can say the people's vote should matter. Well, in that case, Hillary Clinton won the majority vote. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, you have to respect the people's vote over here, and therefore the, the, the electors have to vote the way the states voted. But then you're also going to say, oh, we're a republic, we're not a democracy. Well, then in that case, the electors can vote for anyone they want. That's how the founders envisioned. Now, why should they vote against Trump? I ain't saying anything about the wall, okay? He's dangerous to the Constitution because he doesn't understand the Constitution, and he doesn't respect the Constitution. He's talked about using civil liability laws to sue reporters who criticize him. He's talked about making people register with the federal government based on their religion. That's very dangerous. He'd be the first president ever who's never held an office of public trust. Every other president has served in the public trust before assuming the title of commander-in-chief. Now, you think you can't even get a job at jack-in-the-box without something on your resume. This guy's going to be president of the United States, and he's never served in a public office. That's just the kind of thing that would make our founding fathers very nervous. And so that's why I would like the electors to vote against him. But they don't have to. I'm not saying that they have some legal obligation to. I think it's the right thing to do. Anyone can make the case that, no, they should go ahead and vote for Trump. But what you can't do is tell me that I'm somehow wrong based on our system of government. This is our system of government. They can vote for anyone they want. Wonderful, Daniel. A caller, 612, do not hang up. We have another call on the line, 917. Roy, you're still on the line, but you have a lot of background noise. So I keep uh, turning on your mic, but I keep hearing the noise of, you can handle it. So 917, you're on the line. 917, you don't have anything to say? Okay, what about 310, we have you. Okay. Your phone is, okay. Okay, Roy, you're back on. All right, um, I want you to talk about how, for those who may not know, we try to educate people as much as possible, uh, how someone becomes a member of the Electoral College. Uh, well, it's different in every state, but in general, they're appointed by their party, by their political parties. That's interesting. So these are members who come from the Democratic or Republican establishment. Correct. Okay. I've heard, um, I've heard them called. I've heard them called <laughs> by some people, you know, but they're, they're party loyalists, and that, and that makes our job, you know, that much harder. Well, that makes their job much harder because these are people who, are, who if, even if they go against the will of 
the, the voters, they're, they're, they have to then, you know, look at the party apparatus who elected them to be there in the first place. Yes, that's, that's right. And uh, what's very interesting to, to us is that uh, this is not how the framers intended it. They, they didn't believe in political parties. Uh, you know, these, these folks were supposed to represent the state and not be uh, loyal to political parties. That's why one of the only requirements uh, for an elector is that they are not an elected official. Donald, are you there? Do you want us to continue or you want to come on? I think uh, that's the word Donald's Donald's giving in the federal papers. I, I had a liberty to reflect I, I had in the federal paper. You can one. continue. And in number Continue 68, he, he talks about this. And, okay. you know, if they're, if they're partisan, then that's what they're going to do. They're going to just vote based on their party's leanings rather than thinking about what's good for their state and what's good for the republic. Yeah, I had a friend on uh, election night when the results were announced that Donald Trump had won the presidency, a very staunch Democratic friend, blame the third-party people, you know, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, and those who voted for them, because essentially within that electoral process system, there are no Libertarian or Green Party members. Uh, And theoretically, if you look at the populist vote in the state, it is almost impossible for one of those third-party candidates to get enough votes as a majority to get any electoral college votes, yet they're allowed to take away votes from the Democratic or the Republican candidate. And so what, what do you say then to, to those who say, look, if you want to look at who caused the election, it's, you know, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson and the people who voted for them, because there's no legal way they could have won the presidency. They took votes away from the Democratic candidate. And in every state where there was a deficit for Hillary Clinton, it could have been made up with the votes that went to Gary Johnson or still, uh, Jill Stein. Yeah, but that assumes that those people would, would pick her over Trump. I mean, I think probably a lot of those Gary Johnson voters would, would pick, you know, would pick Trump or, or over Hillary or, or just stay home. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I'm not a fan of that argument. Yeah. I think, well, you, you also, know, you also at one point. I'm sorry? You also at one point voted Green Party. That's part of why I asked you if you were prepared to ask, uh, answer who you voted for. I, ha- I, have, I, have, I, have, I have voted Green uh, in the past. And I think, you know, if you know someone's particular political leanings, then you have a better shot at making a case. Like, look, I know you're, I know you're a, a liberal. I know you think that Hillary's too centrist, and so you're going to vote for uh, Jill, Jill Stein or, or whatever, but... Here's what the consequences would be. Wanna, could you could you vote for Mrs. Clinton and move us a little farther to the left? I mean, you know, you might go to make that case to somebody, uh, but uh, I think in general, just speaking to third-party voters as a group, uh, I, I don't I don't I don't really buy that argument because you know they they have to vote for someone that they can support, and uh, you know if they don't support Mrs. Clinton, they're not they're not going to vote for her. Okay. Well, let's try the caller 612. Yep. All right. You're back on 612. Yes, you're on. Yeah, thank you. I was going to also say, I just think that in a way this is almost changing the rules after the the game is finished in the sense that 
how do we know that the turnout would have been different had the rules been changed beforehand? For example, if people knew beforehand that we weren't going with the Electoral College, we were going to go with a popular vote over the entire country, who's to say that there would have been the turnout would have been different, whether it be plus, negative, for either side? Who's to know that? And to call that and to now change it after the fact is kind of ridiculous. And if these electors living well, in but- Pennsylvania or Ohio or Wisconsin decide to go and change and go opposite, you're going to have a massive tumult within those states because the people in those states are going to say, we voted based on the understanding that we were going to vote on a state-by-state system. And we came out and voted, and our state voted for X candidate. And now for you to turn around and then flip it on us, the you, you talk about having a, a revolt. I mean, there would be a mat, we'd have We would have political problems for the next four years. It would, no one, I mean, it would be insane. I mean, think about that. Well, sir, but the thing is, the rules are that the electors vote for anyone they want to. And if people make an assumption that they're going to vote the way their state tells them to, that's on the people making the assumption. A campaign strategy does not change the Constitution. The Constitution says the electors vote for who they want to. So, uh, you know, if anybody's saying that they're going to be violent or revolt, I mean, that to me, that's criminal. This is the system that we have. And just because nobody's used it this way before doesn't make it any less constitutional. It's totally legal. You know, you look at what the Republican Party has done with Merrick Garland. Uh, Our presidents have a right and indeed a mandate to fill the Supreme Court and make Supreme Court appointments. And the Senate's supposed to advise and consent, not obstruct for a year. But he could have still appointed him. Well, maybe that's a constitutional question, and I wish that he would. And if, if on December 19th, uh, Mr. Trump really does get a majority of electoral votes, uh, you know, we will be looking very carefully at whether uh, that's going to be the next best use of our, of our energy is to, to try to get him to make that recess appointment. But the fact is the Senate has obstructed that for about a year, and that's unprecedented in American history. Talk about changing the rules. The rules are the president appoints someone, the Senate gives them a fair hearing, and then we have either they, they leave and we get somebody else or they're appointed and we have a nine-member Supreme Court, not a 4-4 tie. Uh, and the Senate's changed the rules too, haven't they? Well, no. What they're doing is they're employing the rules in a way that no one's done before. But they're on solid constitutional ground, even though I object uh, to what they're doing. And, and this is the same thing. Uh, never in American history has the Senate obstructed a Supreme Court appointment like this. And never in American history have the electors changed their votes to, to change the outcome of an election, but they're both constitutional. Okay. Uh, we have a call of 917. You're on the line? Nothing. Okay, go ahead. I want to just add to that. All right. If I may. Uh, and, and so I, would... I wanted to talk to you about an article that I read. Um, I believe it was on PBS, and they had a lot of legal experts talking about the path to where your campaign can be successful. And they pointed to the fact that you need to have a coordinated effort in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that will take Donald Trump from 290 down 30, and he'll have less than 10 to make up for the electoral votes that he needs to 270. Have you coordinated your strategy specifically to the state that you would need, or you just sort of making it a very broad pitch to the Electoral College members? 
Uh, well, a, a little bit of both. Uh, Pennsylvania is definitely one of the states we're most focused on, along with uh, Texas, Georgia, and Arizona. The reason those four is that they're the biggest of the states that don't have any penalties for uh, for conscientious electors. Now, a lot of the scholars we've talked to have said that they think those seats are unconstitutional and wouldn't stand up in court, and you know, so so that all the states really have free electors, despite what their statutes say. But uh, you know, we think for an elector in that position, they, they've got to be a little more uncomfortable uh, if there's a state law. So we focus more on Texas, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona as the four biggest free elector states. Uh, but yes, we are making some efforts in in all of the states. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, there's no precedent for this campaign. There's no blueprint, playbook. Um, so you know, we're we're trying to look at also every elector individually and see who might be most likely to uh, stand with us. Who people who are, you know, were never Trump, people who supported another candidate, people who have family members who are Democrats things like that, uh, it may be more likely to switch their vote. Yeah, and, and within those states, the Electoral College members, are they split 50-50 Republican and Democrat, uh, and do you need a majority to overturn the entire electoral map in that state? How does that work? No, it, it, what happens is uh, the, uh, the on election night, the, the electoral votes are delegated to the, to the party, really, that has won the the majority in all the winner-take-all states, which is all the states but Nebraska and Maine, right? So then on uh, December 13th, the actual electors are certified at the state level. Or that's the deadline. Many of the states have already, have already done it. And so th- those electors are individual people, uh, and they're all going to be from the same political party in the winter dates. And then... Each elector can can vote however they want. They vote independently. They, you know, and, and and for the most part, those are secret ballots. But so you don't need a majority. You need a majority of those in the majority of the party to vote against. It's a, it it just it just needs to be thirty eight electors uh, to to vote for uh, Mrs. Clinton, and she would win. If it's th- if 37 of Trump's delegated electors uh, just vote for anyone else, then it would go to the House of Representatives because he would no no longer have a majority. But those those 37 can come from all from one state. They can come from all the 31 states that uh, that that Trump has been awarded. So you know if, if there's 38 electors in Texas, if they all voted for Mrs. Clinton, she would win. But you know, you could take ten from Pennsylvania, three from Indiana, two from Louisiana, whatever. It doesn't matter. All right. So it's a cumulative effort. Now, let me ask you: Is it your petition drive that I saw was vowing to pay for the fines for the electors who face fines? You know, we've said that we'd like to, we'd be willing to help with that. Uh, and there, there are several efforts to raise money for that. Uh, you know, so that's, again, that's I, different from your campaign, from the GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, there are separate. There are other people who are who are who have just focused on raising money for any uh, conscientious electors to 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 pay their fines. You know, I can't make a promise that I'm going to pay for all their legal costs. I mean, what if somebody gets a thousand fine and then they decide to hire high-priced lawyers and take it all the way to the Supreme Court? I mean, that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, I have no ability to raise that kind of money, so I'm not saying anything like that, but. 
you know, if somebody got fined a thousand dollars, it was one guy, and that was it. He just wanted to pay the fine. Uh, I, I I think we'd be glad to help with that. I mean, I want to make sure that, you know, I people have told me, oh, that's a bribe, and I, that doesn't seem like a bribe to me. But I, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but you don't know what those fines and costs would be. I, I, well, I, I don't. I don't know in every state, but they're small. I, you know, I'm certainly not trying to bribe anyone. I'm not trying to get anybody to change their vote because they're getting paid. But if someone were really wanting to vote against Trump, but they were just afraid they couldn't pay the fine, I think it's reasonable to let them know. Hey, you know, you have supporters that would probably come and come and pay your fine. But again, we're focused on mostly on the states where there are no laws of, about this, and 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 B. Constitutional scholars think that those fines probably won't hold up in court. That's what we right. uh, let, yeah, yeah, let, Let's talk a little bit about the, the recount effort from Jill Stein. It was supposed to say that Hillary Clinton was going to join the recount effort. Um, how does that aid or help in, 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 in the overall picture? If they're like in Wisconsin, they're trying. They they pushed for a recount. They're going to do it. It's the first time they've ever done it in state's history, and there are varying accounts of whether or not there was fraudulent activity that took place that might sway the yeah, the ultimate outcome uh, of the election. What's your entire feelings about that whole situation? Well, I guess I would say three things. First, uh, I definitely believe that. Uh, there are many voting irregularities in the United States, some some unintentional and some perhaps intentional. And uh, I, I long believe that I don't favor Five more minutes, uh, that's it. Okay, Donald? When Mr. Trump said he wouldn't accept the election. Well, you, you, that you did not have a guest today. rather than really getting into a conversation about that because uh, I don't want to see either party give up their right to question election results we know there are major voting irregularities. We know people are turned away from the polls. We know cross-checking is removing voters' names illegally from the registry. We know that hundreds of polling places, primarily in African-American communities throughout the South, were closed uh, between the last presidential election and this one. So we, we know there's voter suppression happening. I, I've heard right-wing uh, uh, sources say that illegal immigrants are voting I don't see any evidence that that's happening. But if it's happening, that then that should be discussed too. So if a recount can reveal some of that, uh, if an audit can reveal some of that, that's good. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm glad to see the Clinton campaign jumping in. I'm, uh, we've all been wondering what happened to her over the last few uh, uh, two weeks. She sort of disappeared. So I'm glad to see that she's jumping in with uh, – Dr. Stein's efforts and, and participating. And then the third thing, of course, is that if, if some of these numbers change and one of these states flips, uh, our task in, in, uh, in winning at the Electoral College level is made much easier. You know, uh, In fact, if, if Pennsylvania and Michigan flip, we're, we're two votes away uh, after that. So uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the recount efforts, and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay. Um, we want to check for another caller. Great. Any more callers? Caller. All right. Um, Roy? Yeah. Roy, you go ahead. Any more questions? 
Uh, no, if we don't have any more callers, I was going to give Daniel an opportunity to sort of recap uh, if he wanted to and then say your last-minute uh, words. Yeah, thanks. Well, I would just say that, you know, the Electoral College is, uh, we think is a dated and antiquated system, but it's the one we've got, and we have an opportunity this year to uh, accomplish two important uh, goals. One, keep keep a very dangerous demagogue who doesn't understand the Constitution out of the White House, and two, uh, restore the popular vote. Uh, Mrs. Clinton is going to win by more than two million. Uh, no presidential candidate has gotten this many uh, votes up until the last couple elections. It would make her, it makes her one of the most popular political candidates actually in history. And uh, and so the electoral college can uh, can vote for anyone they want. If people don't like that, then we should be talking about electoral college reform. But uh, to, to me, the main problem with electors voting any way they want is that they can undermine the popular will. This year, they have the chance to restore the popular will. So uh, that's what we're advocating for. We've got 4.6 million people that support this, uh, as well as uh, many scholars. And some of the uh, Democratic electors themselves have, have spoken in support of this idea. And so um, we're just going to take it all the way to December 19th. Okay, any contact information you want to share with us, your website and phone numbers? and Yeah, we would just encourage people to go to electoralcollegepetition.com, electoralcollegepetition.com. They can also follow us on Facebook uh, at Electoral College Petition and on Twitter at EC Petition. Uh, and it always helps to have uh, the social media followers and have people sharing uh, the petition. Uh, there's still a lot of people that don't know about this, so I would just encourage everyone to, to spread it around, and, uh, and let's see if we can't get those numbers a little higher before December 19th. Okay, well, right. sounds good. Ben, Brennan, and all, thank you so much, and we hope you uh, have great success with your efforts. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Are the kids doing their homework? All right. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Cecilia. Hello. Okay, Cecilia, are we doing a station break? Are we going to take your last 30 minutes? Or? Uh, yeah, we'll uh, do a station break. And uh, we've got two breaking news stories, uh, one that we all at this point know about, is in Cuba, uh, Fidel Castro is dead at the age of 90. Breaking news out of Washington, Donald Trump, a scam. Uh, Donald Trump has come out for the first time and uh, voiced his opinion on the recount election in a statement he put out about 20 minutes ago calling the Green Party Jill Stein recount, uh, I don't know what to call it, uh, initiative, uh, a scam. We'll talk about that and more. Uh, from Tino Radio in New York, I'm Cecilia Ben. Uh, you're listening to Chilling with Donna Brown's Journal. Uh, we are here with Donna Brown uh, and myself, Cecilia Ben. Uh, Donald, uh, how are you today? I'm finding you, Cecilia. How are you? I uh, it's been an interesting week in politics today uh, with uh, what's going on and what just happened in Washington just a couple of minutes ago in 
uh, with this uh, latest Trump statement and with uh, the news of uh, retaliation from the Republicans if this uh, faithless elector situation continues onward and progresses. Um, but uh, where do you want to begin, Donald? Well, you said it so much. I think, I think out, out of respect for uh, one of my heroes, Fidel Castro, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to just take a moment of silence uh, to reflect upon him and his special work that he's uh, contributed to this global society. So we can just take a moment as the TNA family reflect on this leadership, this very special leadership that we've been privileged to be a part of. I want to thank you. Uh, as we reflect upon this brother's work, brother, I, I tell you, I, I, you look at the energy that's, that's transpiring on both sides of the Atlantic. You see what's happening in Miami, and you see what's happening in uh, Havana. You know, uh, uh, it's two distinct energies. And yeah. while I, you know, find that it's, it's, this is seeming to be the way of the world today, if you look at it. Right, right. Yeah, how you can have just 90 miles away a people who fled decades ago from uh, now celebrating the streets, while many more and in the island uh, who remain on the island where Fidel Castro has been the big ta- or sorry the uh, leader for uh, I don't know how many decades it's been actually, which is a shame because I I have taken more than two at least. Uh, College classes on Latin American history have taken uh, many uh, history classes in high school on Latin American history. I do not remember the specific date of the Cuban Revolution, and I wrote a paper about it. I mean, a full-length research paper on it. What was that? Oh, no, I'm thinking out loud. I said I thought it was five decades. Five decades. That sounds about right. I think 1960s was the... Uh, no, well, actually, 1959, I think it was, when he... Uh, 1959, came out. when he came out of the mountains. Ah, yeah. okay, all right. And, um, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I have mixed feelings about this because I personally have friends whose parents were jailed by Castro, um, and uh, I'm not exactly an impartial source when it comes to Castro or Cuba because a lot of my friends have been impacted negatively by the... Castro regime, uh, but uh, I, 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 want, I want you guys to to talk about this because I I think I have to step out for this. I have to not take part in this one. Go ahead, guys. Well, today they had mentioned that um, Batista left the island uh, in January of 1960. So mm-hmm. he left the people to deal with Castro. He left. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess he said that he was losing, so so he got out of town. Well, the hitting was good. Yeah, but you know, I was reflecting on some of the. I've been listening to BBC and some of the other foreign stations uh, on how they are reflecting on the leadership of Fidel and what he contributed to people. The world, who knows that? No, Fidel was responsible for over three hundred thousand doctors providing mm-hmm. medical. Globally, of which 6,000 of them 
were from developing nations, not not for uh, ten thousand or five thousand years, but for a dime, nothing, zip. Mm-hmm. Gave him a vacation and what he contributed to the healthcare development of the society we live in. It depends on where you are. Depends on whether you think he was good, bad, or indifferent. It depends on whether you are, if you were pro Castro, you saw all the good that he did. If you were being um, uh, disadvantaged by the people who were rich at the time he took over, him taking over was a good thing. The, the, The country equalized. A lot of the stuff that was bad that was going on got equalized, equal, E-Q-U-A-L, equalized. And right. some of the stuff that, um, one of the reasons I think that the people in in um, Florida are so upset about is they were the thriving, up-and-coming up and thriving people. And when he took over, he nationalized some stuff. And they, rather than stay, or maybe they knew since they were friends of Batista, that a better point of value was to get out of town so they could left and came here. And they've been mad ever since. Well, that and a lot of their parents were killed and jailed under his regime at the onset. Yeah. I'm, and then that's, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but uh, it, it, it is. A, a lot of Batista's people, he knew yeah. he couldn't trust. So we got yeah. rid of them. We got rid of them is the word, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, this morning I pulled up something because you know me, I just like to. And um, it was so negative that I had to just keep going in. Cecilio helped me. But when I started out, I was there were some facts, you know, that I was reading that I could be mistaken but what really, you know, caught my attention was that I believe they said it was 30,000 volunteers that fought, um, 90,000, drove 90,000 of his people out of the country or one or what have you. Now, I couldn't pull that back up again, but I was wondering. 90,000 of whose people? 90,000 of of, um, Castro's, they were volunteer fighters. That's how Mm -hmm. they put it. And, you know, it's just me because I'm thinking, you know, this is the the strength of volunteers that will go out there for anything. They are people that go out there. They're not going to say if they don't pay me or if I can't eat today, you know. So I I just wanted to see if I could pull up that or And it wasn't a... It wasn't a video. It was just, you know, writing. So, it, like it, I said. If I remember correctly, the people that were fighting with Castro originally were volunteers. Those were people yeah. that got together with him to get rid of what they call the corruption and the, um, um, what was it, the, the rich people taking advantage of the poor people and whatever. And he had tried it before, and he got arrested and spent time in jail. When he got out of jail, he went to Mexico. When he came out of Mexico, I heard this morning that he came out with 81 people. That that was uh, his his group that started the revolution. I don't know that for sure. 
but I had read earlier when this first started that the people that were with him they were anti-Batistas, either people who had been jailed by Batista or who had been whatever by Batista, and they uh, decided to take over the country. I think part of that reflects the importance of trust in our own democratic institutions, because mm-hmm. uh, think about it. We're talking about 90,000 foreign fighters, right? And mm-hmm. uh, fighting against the government of a republic of over six million in the ni- uh, in the 1959 and into the 1960s, going mm-hmm. into seven million by the end of the 1960s. So we're talking about an island country of over six million people, whose government was overthrown by 90,000 foreign volunteer voluntary uh, fighters. Um, yeah, right, reflecting. Yeah. The importance of, of, of trusted institutions, because institutions and governments are highly fragile. And the moment society loses trust in those institutions, they collapse. Uh, and that's what you see in Cuba. That's what you saw in Cuba in, in the 1960s. It is a ethos of no confidence in the uh, Batista administration um, resulting inevitably in the, the overthrow at the hands of a relatively small number uh, of opposition groups um, and opposition fighters. Um, I mean, just uh, I would say it, there's definitely something to appreciate in the healthcare system and education system that was established under Castro. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said there. Um, the, 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 yeah. I think one of the reasons why the population in Cuba didn't, wasn't so dis, distrustful of Castro is because he equalized things. The edu- everybody got an education. Everybody got uh, health care, not just the rich and famous. So people who were unable to um, progress under the old regime mm-hmm. found out that they were able to move forward on the Castro. So right. that's why, you know, more people weren't leaving. People were saying, well, why? They, they, they may not be happy, but they're better off than they were. And, you know, they have no crime, zero percent crime. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because the people who commit the crimes disappear. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, but uh, I, I, I do want to. Uh, I'm not, not pro-Castro and I'm not anti-Castro. I'm looking at both sides. He did a lot of good. But the, for the people that were anti-Castro, I'm sure they, they saw only the bad. The people that were pro-Castro saw only the good. Oh, yeah, look at the people in Miami right now, uh, uh, Miss Nelly. Look at the people in Miami. They're celebrating it. I have never seen anyone celebrate the death of someone in the way that this celebration is going on. Well, right. that's because a lot of these people who are celebrating, their grandparents were killed by Castro. And, uh, and yeah, but how long are you going to hold that, brother? Okay, a lot of the people that are celebrating were told that their grandparents were killed by Castro because well, they were never in Cuba. Thank they, you. Were raised, they were born oh, and raised in, in Florida. 
their parents apparently were sent here by the people who stayed in Cuba. Some parents stayed in Cuba and they sent their children to America to be educated and whatnot because they didn't want them, I guess, educated with the riffraff in Cuba. So they sent them to America to be educated. Um, well, no, there's their a children. Oh, no, well, no, there's a countless number of, uh, 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 u